Hope you have your Bible open to Joshua chapter 6. We're going to delve deep and see a picture, a model that is seen all through Scripture. We're going to see the times when God's people are to be silent and the times when God's people are to shout. In order to understand this aright and to develop a strong biblical theology of these things, we'll need the help of the Spirit. And so let's ask for that now. Our Father, we ask that you would give us by the Holy Spirit light and understanding. We confess that we are dull and distracted. Our thoughts are far away. They're on the discussion of yesterday or the plans for tomorrow unless you, by the Spirit, now arrest our minds and consciences. And so we ask that you would fix our gaze on the Scripture. Lord, we pray that you would do more than just inform us, but you would transform us by the hearing of the Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our context is in Joshua chapter 6. We're at the place in the narrative where the people of God have, have entered into the promised land. And they're now in the land circling the first city that they find, the stronghold city, the walled city of Jericho. Israel is just about to engage in their first conquest. Now, as to their specific orders, you'll remember the context at the end of chapter 5 and beginning of chapter 6. I told you that there are some places in Scripture where there are unfortunate chapter divisions, and this is one of them. If you look at the division between chapter 5 and chapter 6, it breaks up an encounter between the greater Joshua and the lesser Joshua. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to Joshua, and he comes to him with a drawn sword in his hand to give him specific orders and commands to tell him that he's going to lead the charge. And the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus, reminds him that he'll be with him. And look what the word is that Joshua passes on. The wise man of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said in Ecclesiastes 3, 7, There is a time to keep silence and a time to speak. You all know people who have never discerned between the two of those things when it is the right time to be silent, and when it is to speak. Well, this text is going to give us profound help in understanding this. Joshua understood the principle long before Solomon recorded it. Here we are in our narrative at Jericho, and God has given orders to march around the city. Now, I want you for a moment to think about the, the scope, the volume of people who are moving, who are about to either shout or about to be silent. Hundreds of thousands of Israelite soldiers are going to encircle the city of Jericho. There are almost a million fighting men circling Jericho. These hundreds of thousands of soldiers have at the front forming the advance troop, and then they are followed by seven priests blowing seven ram's horns, followed by the ark, and then comes the rear guard of another half a million soldiers and the priests. And these, these priests were to be constantly blowing on these trumpets all the week long. All you can hear, the only sound you can hear, is just the noise of these seven trumpets going off. I don't know if it's melodic or harsh, but what we're told is they blew continually. But the soldiers were to be totally silent. Look at Joshua 6 verse 10, just for a feel of the juxtaposition. We read, Joshua commanded the people saying, you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. So get the picture. 
a million soldiers, totally silent, walking around the walled city of Jericho, day after day, hour after hour, no sound comes from their lips. And this has to be one of the most ominous, chilling, eerie sights in the history of warfare. A million soldiers tramping around, not a word, not a shout, not a threat. The only sound you hear are those seven trumpets that just keep blaring all day long. Now, why was it a time for silence for the soldiers? Why was every soldier to remain mute as he marched? And what I want to develop for you very briefly tonight is a biblical theology of silence. As we draw out concepts contained in Scripture, some of you are saying, silence, what is that? I'm not sure what that is. Carl, I have children in my house. But we live, even if you don't have children, we live in perhaps the most cacophonous generation ever, the noisiest time ever. And so what I say to you might come as an oddity to you. What I want to show you is that God has designed certain occasions where his people should, must be silent before him. This is counterintuitive to many of you who the radio in your car has never been off. When you start your car, the radio comes on. Or you have your lights, which is rigged at home, so that when you turn the lights on, the television comes on. You go to sleep at night to the blare of television. You wake up in the morning to the sound of a noisy alarm. There's no silence in between. You're not quite sure what to do when you're silent. But what we're going to see is God has designed all sorts of times in the Christian life when it's appropriate to be silent. Silence, by the way, is a lost discipline. It's a lost spiritual discipline in our culture. Why is it appropriate? Why does God command his people to be silent this week? And a better question, when is it appropriate to be silent before God? And I want to give you four times from this text, and then I can hint at several others, but four times when it is appropriate to be silent. And so roll up your sleeves and look with me at the word of God in Joshua 6. First of all, silence is always appropriate just before the impending judgment of God. Now, we're digging deep here to understand the broad swath of Scripture. Silence is always appropriate before the impending judgment of God. God is about to speak loudly in judgment to the Canaanites. It's fitting then for every human voice to be still. The Scriptures demand that men be silent when they stand face to face before the judgment of God. Zechariah the prophet says in Zechariah 2, to be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. This is speaking in a context where God's about to judge the enemies of Israel. But if you think back about 10 minutes ago when Pastor Anderson read you the first part of Revelation 8, we see a remarkably parallel, analogous text on this issue of silence before judgment. This is the beginning. If you just peek back to Revelation 8, this is the beginning of God's cataclysmic judgment upon his enemies. But look what happens just before those enemies. We read these words in Revelation 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Do you know what that sounds like? It sounds just like our text in Joshua 6. Seven angels, seven trumpets, sounds like seven priests with seven trumpets. And what also is analogous is how every resident in heaven is silent before the judgment of God. 
And think about how this jars our hearing. Silence in heaven for about half an hour. I thought heaven was that place where saints and angels spend all their time praising God loudly with a loud voice. But right then they're hushed. Why? Because if you read on in the context of Revelation 8, they're hushed because God is about to pour out his wrath on wicked men. You know this intuitively when you'll watch some courtroom drama and the guilty man is about to be seized, sentenced. A hush falls over the courtroom because this is serious business. A man's on trial for his life. He's about to be condemned. And so the judge never has to tell anyone to be quiet. He's about to pass sentence. Everyone's hanging on every word just before judgment falls. And the Israelites know this. They know as they tramp around the city, all million of them, the Israelite soldiers know that the residents of Jericho are about to be judged, and so they're silent. It's appropriate to be silent before the judgment of God. A second time when it's appropriate to be silent. It's appropriate to be silent before God intervenes in salvation. This is the inverse of what we just saw. The marching of the men around Jericho is in anticipation of promised divine intervention upon their behalf. God is about to save them, that is Israel. He's about to deliver them from their enemies. So when I use the word salvation, I'm using it in its broadest possible sense here. The silence was the prelude to the shouting, shouts of victory. Now think about an analogous text to this. I want you to do a little work with me in, the cop, in your copy of God's Word. Look back at Exodus 14, and I want you to see a precursor to this, of when God's people are told to be silent and watch for the salvation of God. In Exodus 14, <clears throat> this is an earlier day that Joshua was there as well in the brief history of Israel as a people. This is Joshua's generation when we look at Exodus 14. And these are the fathers who are backed up against the Red Sea and hurtling down upon them at breakneck speed, chariots and horsemen, the mightiest army on the planet. The Egyptian army is headed straight into their teeth, and they, the Israelites, are unarmed. They're just a group of newly delivered slaves. What can they do? Here comes the Egyptian army, swords flashing, cavalrymen shouting, the whole army of Egypt coming on top of them. And what does God say to them? Look at Exodus 14, verse 13. By the way, Joshua was there that day too. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord, which he'll accomplish for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Hold your peace, quite literally in Hebrew, means keep your mouth shut. Be silent. God's about to work. God's about to deliver you. He's about to save you from your enemies. And that's the same thing now that we're going to see at Jericho. God says, all you million men, be quiet. I'm about to do a mighty work. I'm going to deliver you from these mighty residents of Jericho in their huge fortified city. It's appropriate when God is about to do a work of deliverance for his people to keep your mouth closed. These fighting men, the sons of the men we read about in Exodus 14, were to march in silence around the city as they waited on God, just like their fathers waited on God against the Egyptians, to march 
in silence as they wait on God to work mightily in their behalf. As they tramp along, the only sound you hear is just the stepping of their sandals. They're to be fixated on each step. That's the only noise. And so they're saying to themselves, here's the noise going on in their mind. The battle is the Lord's. Step. He'll save us this week. Step. He'll flatten the walls of Jericho. Another step. He'll crush our enemies. Next step. This isn't the silence of melancholy. This is the silence of expectation and hope to see the Lord work to save his people. There's a third time it's appropriate to be silent before God. Silence is always appropriate before the immediate and special presence of God. Look in our narrative in Joshua 6 at verse 8. Where are these people marching in Joshua 6? Well, they're marching, and this is astounding for them. They're marching in close proximity to the ark. Half a million of them just in front of the ark, half a million of them just behind the ark. The ark, you'll remember, is the symbol of God's special and gracious and powerful and covenantal presence with them. The same ark that would stay in the Holy of Holies where only one man could go and then uh, once a year and then only for a few minutes and then only with blood. And now the ark of God, the presence of God is right there. It's, it's so close you could almost touch it. It's right in front of them or right behind them. This is the presence of God with them. One of the fitting responses when men find themselves next to God is silence. And look at the contextual flow in Joshua 6. In verse 9, right after we read about the ark, the armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark. It's just the next verse in verse 10 that silence is commanded. Silence because of reverential silence. You're right there by the ark. God is right there in their midst. And the psalmist picks up on this thing. And let me quickly make an application. There are some of you who don't know what to do in the presence of God. You know those people who they sort of have nervous laughter and nervous chatter when they're talking to people? And then when they go into their closet, they don't know how to be silent at all before the Lord. They don't know how to put their hand over their mouth and say, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. They don't know how to spend ten minutes in silence before God to adore his presence and his greatness. But listen to what the psalmist does in Psalm 62. Listen to what David writes and then answer me this question. Can you say these words or when, they re- when you read them, are they foreign to you? David writes these words. Listen carefully. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. David says it again in Psalm 62. My soul waits silently for God alone. My expectation is from him. We live in a culture of noise. I said a moment ago, several years ago, when I was doing student ministry and doing it very poorly, I would always say before we would leave on a mission trip or a retreat or a conference, I would print it on huge, print it in huge letters on the retreat form, no radios, no phones. I didn't want noise because we had lots of designated time for students to be alone with God, for them to meditate on the word, for them to read scripture and to hear God speaking at them. And I had kids come to me, middle school, high school kids, and they'd say, 
Carl, I can't go four days without my radio. Actually, they said, I can't go four days without my Walkman, but you don't know what that means. <laughs> and I had two boys come to me and they said, Carl, if we give you 20 bucks, will you just look the other way? They tried to bribe me. I said, no, I can't be bribed. And so I made the rule that any kid who brought a radio, a phone, a, a Walkman, it became my property. And I would have the parents sign off on a form before their kid got on a bus. If I discover a Walkman or a radio or a phone, it becomes mine. Within three years of student ministry, I had a large collection of phones and Walkman pretty quickly. And I had kids, again, who just said, I can't go 24 hours without a radio. I don't know what to do when I'm silent. And, of course, they came from homes where their parents said the same thing. Jim Elliott, the great missionary martyr, wrote in his journal, I'm firmly convinced that Satan's weapon against me is constant noise. Holy silence on my part that shuts the mouth and focuses on the awesomeness of God and his presence is a lost discipline that I'm trying to recover. This happens corporately as well. Years ago, I was preached in a church, and one of the things that's so striking and disconcerting about their worship was the constant noise and moving about and their inability as a church to be silent and still and reverential at appropriate times. When they invited me back, I just declined because it was too, it was too distracting. When God is moving, when God is in our presence in worship, this is the third time, it's appropriate to be silenced when he is speaking to us. A fourth time, when it's appropriate to be silent before God. Silence is appropriate before any intense battle is to be fought in the name of God. Let me say that again. Silence is appropriate before any intense battle is to be fought in the name of God. <clears throat> I'm an ex-jock, not an accomplished one, but a, a baseball, basketball player who has sat in lots of locker rooms before big games. And I want to let you in on the secret of the locker room. Do you know what's happening in the locker room before the big game? Nothing. It's shockingly quiet. And I can tell you that I've had coaches come in in basketball and baseball, and somebody might turn around and talk to another teammate, and the coach would say, Get quiet! Get your mind on the big game! And so you learn quickly as an athlete. Get quiet. Get your thoughts focused. Make sure you understand the battle. Replay the game plan in your mind. Now, if that can be said of guys who are going to just play a game of basketball or baseball, how much more appropriate is it for people who are going out to fight real battles against the enemies of the Lord to be silent? Silence is appropriate before any intense battle is to be fought in the name of God. In just a few days, these, these men, these million men who are circling Jericho right now, are going to engage in intense hand-to-hand -hand combat. We'll see this over the next couple Sunday nights. Just so you'll know what they are about to face. They don't know this yet, but the walls of Jericho don't fall in on the city. They don't fall out on the Israelites. They just drop. And so here are these huge walls. They drop to the ground, and the soldiers are going to have to climb up over those walls and go into the city of Jericho for hand-to-hand -hand combat. They're going to be engaged in a fight to the death, and they know it. They will have the battle of their life on their hands. Some of them will die. What do they do? Let me be crass and use the term that you'll understand. It's not a biblical term, 
They're getting psyched during those seven days. They're getting ready for the battle. Now, at this point, you're saying, well, that's interesting. I see it. It's appropriate back when people were fighting real enemies. They ought to be quiet, and you ought to be ready, get psyched up for the big battle. But, Carl, I don't really have any battles. Oh, really? You don't? Listen to 2 Corinthians 10. Maybe this will come to a surprise to you that you have a battle every morning when you wake up. When, when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. You see, my friends, you and I go into a battle every day. When we go to school, when we go to work, when you go out into the culture, you're stepping into a battle zone. The fiery darts are flying. The world, the flesh, and the devil are coming at you hard and fast. What's the best way to prepare for that? By girding up your mind. You're going into a workplace, to a schoolroom where people don't name the name of the Lord. You're going into an intense spiritual battle where temptation rages, where there are those who mock and blaspheme. What's the best way to prepare for that? By silently meditating on the promises of God. Now let me transition. We just looked at four times when it's appropriate to be silent. But I want to transition. I'd said that this text is a time for silence and a time for shouting. Look back at Joshua chapter 6. In Joshua 6, Christ, the man with the drawn sword, at the end of chapter 5 and beginning of chapter 6, has told the people to shout. Look at verse 5, to shout at a certain time. This is Christ speaking to Joshua. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. And so Christ has told them this. Look at the chain of communication. Christ speaks to Joshua, the lesser Joshua. Now, do you think Joshua will be faithful to turn around and go and take that to the people and say, listen, Jesus has come to me, and here's what he said. Seven days, walk around the city, keep your mouth shut, not a word, no woofing, no sniping at the people on the walls, no talking to each other or anyone else for seven days. And then when the signal is given, when the horn blows, you shout. Or does Joshua say, you know, guys, you know, the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus, the theophany, he told me to shout, but this is all a little bit Broadway-esque. It's a little bit staged. I'm just going to tell all of you guys to march around. There's no need to shout. You know what Joshua does? He does what we've come to expect from him already in Scripture. He obeys, he salutes the greater Joshua. Look at verse 10 very carefully. At the close of verse 10, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. He turns around now to the people and faithfully passes on the order that the greater Joshua gave him. Then on verse 16 and verse 20 in chapter 6, notice on the seventh day, Joshua orders them, they shout. Why did they shout? And notice what just happened. We just transitioned. We just looked at four times and reasons to be silent. Now we're going to talk about times to shout. We've moved from the silence of the seven days to the one mighty shout. Here's a million soldiers who on cue let up a roar of a shout. Sounds like a thunderclap. Why did they shout? 
Let me give you four reasons why. Why this shouted. The first answer is the wrong answer. And you see this answer given by many critics of Scripture. Rudolf Bultmann was the liberal, unbelieving scholar of the early 20th century. And he applied what he called demythologizing to the Scripture. And so Bultmann and many of his fellow scholars in Germany said, you know what brought the walls down at Jericho? Notice, by the way, the absence of any supernatural belief here. Do you know what brought the walls down of Jericho? What brought the walls down of Jericho was the accumulated decibel force of the people's shout. Now, for those of you who don't know what that means, it means the shout was so loud it just knocked the walls down. Boltman said, and actually wrote this in print, wasn't embarrassed to do so, Boltman says, it's just like an opera star. When she hits a high note, it will shatter a glass. And so what happened here, when the million men under Joshua shouted, it just shattered the walls and brought them down. It's just the accumulated decibel force, Boltman said. This, of course, is utter demonic nonsense. The word of God doesn't say the wall fell because a verbal sonic boom happened. Others say, well, you know, the the region of Jericho is prone to tremors. And one just happened on the seventh day that Israel marched around the walls, and so a tremor occurred. So the first answer, why did they shout? Well, to make their accumulated decibel force knock the wall down. That's a wrong answer. That's a naturalistic answer. Wrong answer. The second reason, why did they shout? This is going to come as a shock to some of you who have put this aspect of the Christian life off your radar screen. They shouted in simple obedience to the commands of God. They've been told by Christ, the greater Joshua, and by Joshua, the lesser, their ruler, to shout. For them to refuse to shout when commanded would have been clear disobedience. But there's a class of evangelicals now who never learn this. They say, you know, obedience in the Christian life is optional. I don't like it. It forces me to bend my will to somebody else. It tells me what to do with my time and my money and my words and my relationships. I don't like obedience, so I'm not going to obey. Ignoring what Jesus said when he said, if you love me, if, it's a conditional word, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. These million men shout in simple obedience to plain divine commands. It's a very simple answer. Why did they shout? Because God commanded them. When was the last time you did something simply in the Christian life because God commands it? When was the last time you thought, God has mandated, I must obey him? When was the last time you bent your will towards the commands of God simply out of love for Christ? A third reason why they shouted. They shouted, and this is what I really want us to focus on because now we're coming to the essence and the core of Joshua 6. And the shout and what really happened that day at Jericho. They shouted because of faith in God and in his promises. They shouted because they believed God in his word. Jehovah had given his promise to them. Christ had promised in verse 5, it shall come to pass. This is Christ speaking. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and you hear the sound of the trumpet, and all the men shout, all millions strong with a great shout, then the walls of the city will fall down. Christ had given them a promise that the walls would fall down after the shout. They believed the promise. They were confident that God would not bail on his word. And we don't have to speculate whether they believed God's promise and had faith 
because here are the glorious words we read of them in Hebrews 11.30 in the Hall of Faith. By faith, listen to this carefully, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. Hebrews 11.30 doesn't say, by tremors and decibels the wall fell down. It says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. These people believed God's promise that he would bring the wall down, and they acted, and they had to shout before the walls would fall. And look at the sequence. Look at verse 5 of chapter 6 very carefully. Jesus, speaking to Joshua, says when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, first comes the priest blowing the trumpet. When you hear the sound of the trumpet on that seventh day, and all the people shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat. It's sequential. First, you've got to blow the trumpet. Then you've got to shout. Then the walls will fall down. Answer me. What would have been the status of those walls if they wouldn't have shouted? What if they just said, you know, we're going to look like idiots here. You know, these guys are going to blow their horns, and then all million of us are shouting. What if we're shouting and nothing happens, and the walls are still standing? These people will be laughing at us from the top of the walls. They'll be mocking us, saying, oh, what was that for? That's not what happens at all. These men, a million believers. For those of you who, to use the language of John Calvin, who said, who you want to consign our Old Testament fathers to a herd of swine. And don't understand, these are our fathers in the faith. These are the, the, the most glorious word that can be said of them. These are believers. They believe the promises of God. They believed that when the trumpet sounded and they shouted, they believed the walls would drop like a shot. Hebrews 11 tells us so. And that's what faith is. Faith is believing God and acting upon his word. Now let me just throw in a parenthesis very quick. <coughs> I just said the definition of faith. Faith is believing God and acting upon his word. Faith is not acting on a hunch or a feeling or your own speculation. Faith is acting on the word of God. They had a word to act on. God had given them the word in verse 5. If you shout, the wall will fall down. They had that promise. It's been just a few weeks ago that I was having a conversation with a friend here in town, thankfully a friend who doesn't attend Woodruff Road, who said, Carl, I'm believing God for a raise. I'm trusting that God will give me a raise. And I thought, as we walked through our neighborhood, do I really want to have this theological conversation with this person? Or do I just want to leave and say, oh, look, we're passing by my corner. I'm just going to go on home now. I thought, no, I'll, I'll have this conversation. So I said, has God promised you in his word that you're going to get a raise? No, but I'm just believing him for it. I said, that's not faith. That's speculation. You just made something up to believe him. And you see this with the faith movement. You need to believe God for that BMW. Well, has God ever promised in his word to give you a BMW? No, I've looked in the concordance. There is no BMW in the concordance whatsoever. So when somebody says, I'm believing God, I'm walking in faith, God's going to do this or that, they've made something up to believe in. That's not Christian faith. Faith is taking God's word of promise. <clears throat> this is saying... I believe what God has revealed, and I'm going to live by it. And that's what these men shouted, these million men. They didn't make something up and shout. 
They said, God has promised us through his mouthpiece, if we'll shout, the walls will come down. That's faith. Faith is acting in response to the word of God. That's biblical faith, not self-delusion. Faith is believing and acting upon a divinely given promise. Has God given you promises to believe? Here's one. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When you believe that and act upon it, you're not believing in something that you've made up. You're simply obeying God's word and his command. And so these men, they shout with a shout of triumph before the walls fell. That's faith. Did you hear that? They shouted a shout of triumph before the walls fell. Soldiers usually shout exuberantly and joyously only after a victory. Not these. They shouted because they believed God's word. They shouted because they believed victory was sure. Now let me make a couple of applications to us as a body. First of all, biblical religion, biblical saving faith at its core is confident belief in God's supernatural power. Let me say that again because that needs to to get deep down in our bones. Biblical religion, biblical saving faith at its core is a confident belief in God's supernatural power. So saving faith is not possessed when you're always trying to find a natural explanation for God's mighty deeds in history. If that's the case, you no longer have biblical religion or biblical faith. The moment we deny God's supernatural, miraculous intervention, as it's recorded in biblical history, like in this chapter, we're dead in the water. Biblical faith believes that God flattened Jericho. Biblical faith believes that God spoke in six consecutive 24-hour days and all the galaxies and solar systems and worlds leaped into existence. Biblical faith believes that God parted the Red Sea. Biblical faith believes that God sent down manna from heaven for 40 years. Biblical faith believes that God held back the Jordan while Israel crossed on dry land. And most of all, most of all, biblical faith believes that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is fundamental to being a Bible Christian. This is strong persuasion of God's supernatural power exercised on behalf of his learning, of his people. And let me say, if you're hearing and right now you're saying, well, Carl, you know, I like a lot of things about church. I like getting dressed up. When else would I wear my nice clothes if I didn't come to church? I like the hymns. I like the stories. I like the class of people I meet. Well, most of them at Woodruff Road. But I like these sort of things. But you know, Carl, I just have one problem with thinking. Come on now, Carl. Really? A man came out of a grave on the third day? Come on, I've been at too many gravesides. That God held up a sea for hours while... Millions of his people pass through on dry land. Come on, we live in a scientific age. Carl, I like all that other stuff. I'll sing the hymns. But don't tell me to believe something that just goes completely counter to reason. Then, my friend, you're not in possession of biblical saving faith. Biblical saving faith believes in the supernatural power of God. Is that you? Do you delight in the power of God? Do you boast in it? Do you turn around and... Say to folks, hey, look at Joshua 6. Look at what my God can do. He can drop the 40-foot walls of a city in three seconds. Look at what my God can do. He can raise the dead. Or do you say, "Mm, my God, I'd rather not talk about it. I'm kind of embarrassed. No, saving faith believes in the supernatural and boasts in it. A second application. 
we must learn from this text to never despise feeble means when they're appointed by God. Think about these soldiers. We don't see any of them recorded saying, come on, Joshua, shout. What good is that going to do? You know, we, well, over here, Joshua, we have a company in the military who are sound engineers, and we know that it's not going to do any good. We can all point our voices at the wall at the exact same time, all million of us, and even the reverberations aren't going to knock a wall down. If you really want to do something good, Joshua, let's build a battering ram. Let's knock this thing down. We've been marching around here for seven days. If we'd been building battering rams, we'd already be inside the city. How do you expect shouting to bring <coughs> the walls down? The question we must learn to ask is this. <clears throat> Has God appointed a means in our situation? If so, then we must use it no matter how ineffectual it seems. For example, God has commanded us to do something that seems incredibly weak, ineffectual, and foolish to the world's eyes. And that is the preaching of the word. The culture, even much of the evangelical culture, says We've got to come up with better means. And so we've got to use video clips and liturgical dance and drama and all these other things because preaching, you know, it just doesn't communicate to 21st century moderns. Carl, you've got to contextualize. Do you know what Paul said of preaching as the means? He said the preaching of the gospel would be foolishness to those who are perishing, but to others God would use it for their salvation. And we need to learn... If God has appointed a means, no matter how foolish and ineffectual it seems, we must use it. Does a shout seem like it will be ineffectual against stone walls soaring up to the clouds? No, because that's the means God has appointed, and he used it. Remember, God's word and power are behind and undergirding the feeblest means. And so don't say, whether it's the preaching of the word or whatever, don't say, what good will it do? Rather say, Lord, will you use and prosper this means that you've appointed? Oh, may the Lord make us a faith-filled, means-using body for his own glory. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you for your sovereign and supernatural power. And indeed, your power is all our boast. Your power has parted seas, flattened walls, and raised men from the dead. Oh, Lord, we trust in that power. And, Lord, we pray that you would give us strong faith to believe, that you would even give us saving faith, that we would put aside all our doubts and skepticism. You'd give us an obedient faith, that we would walk in the promises that you've given, and we would obey your commands. And so, Lord, we plead. Help us now as our fathers in the faith have done that we've just read in this text. Help us to walk by faith and see your blessing and even your triumph. We pray.